0: Well, we're studying the Lord's Prayer clause by clause, and we come to the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition, which is, don't let us be tempted beyond our ability. In fact, lead us out of temptation. But the Lord's Prayer starts off with our Father who art in heaven, so we ascribe unto God almighty glory and strength. We also call him our Abba Father, and we say, hallowed be your name. Or may your name be exalted and lifted up. When God's name is exalted, we get the blessing. When God's name is worshiped, we get the joy. And then we pray, thy kingdom come, which means that so work in us that we are more and more conformed to your image, Lord Christ, preserve and increase your church Overthrow the designs of the devil and every obstacle raised against the knowledge of your word until Christ is our all in all. And then thirdly, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, use us and change us. And then our personal request after we've understood the character of God, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we need our daily bread. Apart from your mercy and goodness, we cannot go forward. Even our, our basic necessity, our daily bread, we need your provision. And then, Lord, help us to understand grace and to walk in grace. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let us understand grace and let us extend that grace to other people. And then the last petition. Don't allow us to be tempted. In fact, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. So don't let us go into temptation. Let us battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let us be keenly aware that there are evil forces arrayed against us that want to drink us down. Let us understand what the Bible says when it says that Satan is a roaring lion, that Satan is a murderer, that he is a liar, that he is the accuser of the brethren. L- let us understand these things and let us battle. In Luke chapter 8, there's a story told by Jesus about the four soils and four different ways to receive the word. And Jesus says that some people receive the word. With a fertile heart, and they produce a bumper crop. And there's others that receive the word and it grows up but is choked by by cares, riches, and pleasures. And then a third group of people receive the word and it and it springs up, but it has no root, and so it quickly withers away. And then the, the first soil is this. He says, The seed is the word, and the ones along the path. Who receive the word but then is taken away very quickly are those who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. There is an active force who called the devil and his minions who wants to take the word away from our sight, from our eyes, so that we cannot believe and be saved. It's a real force. It's reality. That's why in the shorter catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the question is asked, what do we pray for when we say, thy kingdom come? The answer is, in part, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. Satan's kingdom destroyed. Same question was asked and answered in the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1583, and it says this. When we pray, that kingdom come, we pray, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against you and your word. Uh, now, now, recently in the Church of England, there's been a change in their baptismal confession. Uh, formerly, when a baby was baptized in the Church of England, the parents and the godparents would stand up front, and they'd be asked this. this just last year, they would do this. Do you reject the devil and all rebellion against God? And then the parents and godparents would answer, I reject them. The next question. Do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and our neighbor? And they reply, I repent of them. Well, there's been a movement that's been adopted. Then the vast majority of these churches, a more, I hate to use this term, but a user-friendly question has been asked. And the user-friendly question uh, omits reference to the devil and omits reference to sin. Here's the question. I think it's very innocuous, kind of a rubber dagger type statement. Uh, Do you reject evil and all its many forms and all of its empty promises? Close quote. So so there's no mention of the devil, there's no mention of sin, and they respond, yes, we do. One man in the Anglican church said, this is nothing more than an easily swallowed soundbite. Its baptism light has no teeth. And so as, as I read that, one of my concerns is that if you discount Of course, sin, you have no salvation, no cross, but if you discount the devil, then you don't understand the the absolute importance of understanding what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. One of the chief requests is, don't let us be tempted, in fact, deliver us from the evil one, or from evil, translated either way. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Screwtape Letters, makes this statement, it's uh, supposedly Statements made from a senior demon to a junior demon who's trying to derail a new believer. The fact that the devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion, suspicion of your, your existence begins to arise in his mind, the new believer's mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since you cannot believe in that, he cannot believe in you. Uh, getting to laugh at it, to, to, to mock it. And even in our own, own culture, we've got teams, sports teams. I like the Duke Blue Devils, but the, we laugh at Blue Devils. And the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. I have no idea where that came from. Uh, formerly it was a Baptist school. I. I but anyway, the, it's, you, you, you mock it, you laugh at it. And here's the problem. If you discount or, or minimize the evil one, I think you're playing into his hand. There, there is a, an evil one and there are forces of evil that want to destroy our lives. They, they accuse us night and day. Satan is a roaring lion. He's a liar. He is a murderer. And, and to go into battle without understanding that on a daily basis is... It's silliness. I read a book recently called 1942, The the Year That Tried Men's Souls. It's about World War II. And in 1942, right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and we entered the war, there was a dentist from Pennsylvania and a scientist from Harvard, two very educated men who persuaded President Roosevelt to embark upon a campaign that they said would defeat Japan. And their campaign was this. Uh, They said, we want to put incendiary devices on bats and let them fly into Japan and then we'll detonate the incendiary devices. The bats will fall to the ground in these cities, many of whom had houses, of course, made of paper. And it will burn up the population with a minimal loss of life and will bring Japan to its knees. And they they pursued that. And they they got hundreds of bats and put devices on them. The bats couldn't fly. And they said, well, the bats aren't big enough. So they they really, literally, they bought four caves in New Mexico and Texas. And they got these huge bat, uh, cave bats. And they put devices on them, and it didn't work. And finally, after spending in today's dollars, $20 million, they pulled the plug. So, so going into warfare, that understanding we have an adversary and what our resources are is like trying to take Japan with bats. Another scheme was uh, hatched by two people, and the U.S. Army was involved. They, their belief was they could train dogs. And so when we invaded Japan, these dogs could be trained to attack only Japanese people and some Japanese American soldiers said we'll volunteer to be the guinea pigs, and they were attacked, and, and they never could get the dogs to do what they thought they should do. They, the army had a big island off the coast of Biloxi, Mississippi, strange enough, called Cat Island that became the haven for hundreds of thousands of dogs that were trained. And really, they, this is a this plan. This is in the book. I mean, it's, it sounds like Marvel comic book, but it's happened. It says that So their plan was that the first wave would be greyhounds that would lead the attack because of their speed, followed by ferocious wolfhounds, that's the second dog, who would aid in the confusion along with packs of Great Danes. Uh, And then you had Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, and then bloodhounds and other tracking dogs would be used for the mopping up operation. Of course, the last would be... Chihuahuas who would come in and just create confusion. But but really they 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 really thought this would work and they finally said no. And I thought, you know, going into the going into battle without understanding the the adversary is like trying to conquer Japan with dogs. Doesn't work. So so we need brothers and sisters to be aware of the adversary. And that's why I'm gonna go to a well known passage to talk about this issue. It's in First Corinthians ten. Verse 13 is kind of the linchpin of the text. It kind of brings, holds things together. But verse 13 says this There is no temptation that is overtaking you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you. The temptation that Satan brings into your life today to destroy you is not unusual. You are not unique. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Second point, but God is faithful. God is faithful. And the third point, he will make a way of escape so that you can endure it. That's what the text says. And one one of the main points that I want to bring out is this, is that Satan travels along well-known paths. And so right before that passage, he gives some examples in the history of the Old Testament about how God's people blew it. And the point is, Satan travels along well-known paths. In May of 1863, Thomas, Jonathan, Stonewall, Jackson succumbed to pneumonia. And with the death of Jackson, we think now closed the door for any hope of a Southern victory because he was incredibly brilliant in the field of battle. He was wounded, had to amputate his arm, it developed into an infection that went to pneumonia, he died. When you study the life of Jackson and his life and his strategies are studied all over military colleges today. When you say the life of Jackson, he was incredibly brilliant. He he was just, he would win victory after victory with smaller armies, less qualified and less filled with armaments, but time after time, he would beat other generals in the field with one exception. There's something called the Peninsula Campaign, and, and Jackson got there late, and they said was lethargic. And because he got there late, and he was lethargic and not clear in his orders, a chance of a great victory slipped through their fingers. Maybe a crippling victory on the Union forces. And so historians have always said, asked, "What happened to Jackson?" And several theories. One is, he was just physically exhausted. He'd been sleeping three and four hours a night for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. He was just physically exhausted. Another theory is that General Lee's instructions were two ambiguous, which Lee would do. He would give generally ambiguous orders, and Jackson usually honed in and understood them, but he didn't this time. But there's a third third reason, theory that's come up, that's becoming very popular, and that is this, that, that Jackson, wherever he went in Virginia and Western Virginia, would, would bring farmers and goat herders and ranchers, and he said, guys, how do we get from point A to point B around these mountains? There, there, there are these paths that you guys know that we don't, and time after time they said, General, here's a path between these mountains you can get from point A to point B. And so Jackson's foot cavalry, that's what they called them, would all of a sudden march place and totally surprise the opposition and beat them. In this case, as one historian said, his, his, his guides were, quote, lamentably horrible, close quote, in their instructions. They gave him the wrong instructions. And so instead of getting there 12 hours before he was supposed to get there, he got there 12 hours before he was supposed to get there. And what I'm saying is this, the devil travels on well-known paths and they're not unique. No temptation is overtaking you today. Listen, that's not common to man. They're just common. Well-known paths. And in this passage, he gives us four historical examples of, of well-known paths that trip the people of Israel. The first is, he says this, he says, understand that these, these things are examples to us. Verse 6, he says again in verse 11, these things happen to them as examples. So we need to listen. They're examples. Okay, number one is, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This talks about Mount Sinai. It talks about making a golden calf. He says, you know, don't, don't, don't be like the children of Israel who, who, who had a crass idolatry, who put another God before their face, who made a golden image, who cursed the name of the Lord their God. So don't, don't do that. Stay away from idolatry. And then the second example is this. He says, we, we must not, verse 8, indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, the background of that is, very quickly, there was a man named uh, Balaam. He was associated with a group of people called the Moabites. The Moabites had a, a leader uh, by the name of... Uh, Balak, Balak says in chapters 22 of Numbers, the fourth book of the Old Testament, he says, And Balak the son of Zippor, the leader of Moab, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, just, just wiped them out. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. So Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And so he said to the elders, He said, Let's find a, 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 a prophet. And let's let this prophet curse Israel. And so they go to this place, this guy named Balaam, said, Balaam, come and curse Israel. Balaam said, I can't do it. They they finally say, come and curse Israel. He comes, and and Balak has made this incredibly large sacrifice, and they can just see a part of the Israeli people, and he said, curse them. And Balaam stands up, and he blesses the people of Israel. He says, God bless you. And Balaam said, time out. I'm paying you a lot of money. I made this sacrifice for you to curse them. He says, I can't do it. I can, even though I'm not a prophet of God, I'm, I'm a prophet of pagans, God has spoken to me in a dream and says, don't curse these people. They did it again. Balaam did it again. God bless the people of Israel. Balak, the king Balak says, what are you doing? They go through this time after time. And finally, Balaam goes off the scene. But we know later in the book and in this New Testament, Balaam did suggest something that led to horror in the children of Israel. This is chapter 25. While Israel lived nearby, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. See, they they didn't worship idols. They just joined the party. You couldn't get them through idolatry. But they said, we have a party that involves all types of sexual excess." Come and join the party, and they did, they they did, large numbers of them did, and it called forth the judgment of God. And I I thought about us, us, just us, just us. I, generally speaking, generally, I don't worry that you're going to become pagans in your theology. I, I don't. I don't worry that I'll go into your house and I'll see a Hindu god, and you're before the Hindu god, Shiva Vishnu. I just don't. I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. But we live in a culture that says to you every day, just just join the party. Just just join the party. Don't be distinct. Come, just be like us. Like First Peter says, then they the heap abuse upon you because you do not join them in their dissipation. Just turn on the internet. Join the party. Just, just whore after other women, men. And he says, Here, you, these are examples to us. These are examples to us. The, the devil goes along well-known paths. He's not that smart, that different. And then the, the third example is that he says this. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You know the story. They, they didn't believe the promises of God. They started accusing God and fiery snakes came among them and bit them. And they, Moses had to put a serpent on a stand. He says, if you look to the serpent, you'll be saved. And Jesus uses that in John 3 to say, I am represented by that one to whom you look. He says, "Don't do that. Don't, 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 don't speak against God and poor-mouth God and put down the character of God." And then fourthly, he said, "Don't. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer." And that's. Numbers fourteen, you know the story. I'll read it, just part of it to you. Twelve spies go out into the land. Ten come back and say, "We can't take the land. The walls, the cities are too big. The people are too numerous. We're nothing but grasshoppers, and they're a grasshopping mowing machine." And it says, "Then all the congregation, Numbers fourteen, raised a loud voice, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled. See this grumbled, grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said." To them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Just stop. Just, you know, do you ever think about selective memory? Good grief. Or, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a new leader and go, let's go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, who were among them, who spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they cried out to the congregation, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it. To us, a land that flows with milk and honey, only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us, and their protection is removed. And the Lord is with us, do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared, at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? See, they didn't believe the goodness of God. They didn't trust him. See, that's what verse 13 says. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man but God is faithful. God's faithful. You you can trust God. You can believe God. You can look to God. See, they grumbled against God. And you know the rest of the story, everybody over the age of 20 never saw the promised land, 40 years of wanderings. And Paul says here, these stories, this historical narrative is to serve as an example to us. I'm going to, just in a few minutes, I'm going to ask, go to this text and just and give you some keys to praying, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let temptation overwhelm us, instead deliver us from the evil one. Now, this section, chapter 8 through chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, is all about personal rights, liberties. Uh, Paul is the apostle of the heart set free. Paul loved Christian liberty. He said, it's only the work of Christ. There's no rules keeping. It's only the work of Christ. So these people came along and they said, absolutely, amen. Paul says, you know, meat offered to idols is no big deal. But, but, But if your brother, who's a new Christian, sees you eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and it offends him, you've wounded your brother. Do not let your liberty and your freedom be a stumbling block to your brother or sister in Christ. You have the right to have a wife. You have the right to do this. You have the right to do that. But he says, but, but, but it's not like Paul is waving a little flag. And he says, yeah, we have rights. But, but he's saying this. Now, as I read this and studied it, he says, we have rights, but don't forget that we've been bought with a price. We're to honor God with our body. Chapter 6. We've been bought with a price. So so you are a blood-bought person, eternally loved of God, called unto him, sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have a responsibility to live as a free, gospel-oriented man or woman. And That's why Paul says, I've become all things to all men so that I can just preach Jesus to them. I, I just want to preach Christ. And then this, this is the first key. He says, he says, therefore, he says, I live as a freed man who's always in training, like an athlete. And he uses an illustration that everybody at Corinth understood because they understood the, what we call the Isthmian games. He says in chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run but only one gets the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete competes or exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we will receive an imperishable one. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one just beating the air. I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest... After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, in this context, the first key is to understand we're saved by grace. And we live as people who are to trumpet his praises. And we do that by leading a life that's training like an athlete. We are always in training and so we live with energy and passion and effort and fortitude. We, 2 Timothy 4, we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We enter into this battle knowing that we've got to press hard after Christ. I think in the instruction in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, uh, be, be diligent in these things, Bible reading, preaching, teaching, praying. Be diligent in these things. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And I, I say to you, brothers and sisters, if you're called to any place in the body of Christ, if you're saved, people should see your progress in faith. And if I'm to fight against the evil one, I've got to pr- pray, deliver us from evil. I've got to be a man who's in training. The second thing in this text is that if if I am to find the way of escape and live with diligence, I've got to understand that Christ must always be central. Here's a man, Paul, who used to curse Christ and persecute Christians. And when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, they laid their feet at the name of a young man named Saul. We think that was the apostle Paul. And he gave heartily approval to the stoning to death of Stephen and others. Here's a man, he, he despised the name of Christ. And when Paul was converted and he saw all the promises of Scripture fulfilled in Christ, that's all he could talk about. And so he says here, he says in verse 4, they they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So in the Old Testament, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and the rock, it, it all foresignified the coming of Jesus, because all the promises are fulfilled in Him He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did in the the Old Testament. When they they rejected the living God and his promises, they were rejecting Christ. He says, Christ must be central in all that we do. The gospel's got to be central. And when you get that, you get that life is important. Now, uh, recently, Joan Rivers died, 81 years of age. I didn't know much about her. I know very gifted, very funny. Peggy Noonan, one of my favorite writers in the Wall Street Journal, wrote a very kind uh, article about her life. And then I read about her funeral, and I just wanted to weep. I just wanted to weep. She uh, Jewish by heritage, so the funeral was in a synagogue. And her instructions went like this: She said, "I want to be an upbeat service, so that Meryl Streep could grieve in five different accents." She says, I want there to be a fan blowing my hair when I'm in the casket so that I look like Beyonce. This is something at her funeral. She said, I want it to be kind of an edgy service. So she had asked for Howard Stern to give the eulogy. I, I would not, I would have be been afraid that lightning would come down and lick up the whole place of Howard Stern were there. I mean, I thought, good grief, Howard Stern? And then the funeral recessional was some bagpipes playing New York, New York. I just went, really? I mean, really? You see, when you, when you know Christ, life has meaning. I, I confess to you, there, there, are, there are days that go by I admit, when I don't have this thought You're going to die one day. We live in a culture that uh, I think one of my chief responsibilities is should be up stand up here every Sunday and say to you, "Welcome to this worship service. This may be your last. (laughs) Uh, You're going to die one day. Death. There's an eternity. There's an eternity." And when you, when you see the reality of Christ like Paul is pleading for in this passage, you live life with, with resolve. What did T.S. Eliot say? If you, when you see the reality of life, you don't measure it out in tablespoons, you measure it out in, in teaspoons. So, the radical reality of Christ. Number three, if, if I'm to... Go well and do well and cry out, don't let me go into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Number three, verse 12, he says, there, therefore, based upon these, this historical narrative, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. In other words, you're saying these people saw the power of God, tasted the power of God, and they still blew it. I tell people frequently when they ask me these things, I say, you know, the thing that keeps me humble to the dirt is that I can take a piece of paper like this, and I, I forget so much. I just forget. But I can still put down the name of 15 men, more godly than I will ever be, who because of sin Blew their testimony for Christ. Easy, not even a stretch. Easy, better than I'll ever be. That's not humility; it's just the truth. And so, I, I, Paul says, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, I, 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 examples. I'll be the examples. I beat my body. I make my body my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I would not miss the price. And so I just want to remind you, you, you be very careful because if you think you're standing, you just might be ready to fall. I, I despise my own spirit, the self assured, caddy, I've got all together spirit that is just endemic to our culture. It's just, it just pours out of this culture, and, and it, it destroys spiritual life. Everything I have is a gift from God. I want want you to finish well, man. I want you to finish well. Be careful. Then fourthly, he says this. He says, just a pithy verse, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then he goes on, he talks about this this idolatry, and he says, you know, know, we know that an idol is nothing. It's just wood and stone. We know, he says, but... Verse 20, I I imply that that pagans sacrifice, when they sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. In in other words, he says, when you go to a a table in a pagan temple, and even though the, the, the God is just stone, there is a demonic presence there and when you worship that idol and you eat at that table you are a participant with demons you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the table Lord and the table of demons shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy he says just stay away from my doctrine Here, again it's, it's not in the Old Testament there's this God named Molech and Molek, part of worship of Moloch was to sacrifice your children for good crops. Now, if you got an invitation in the mail, an email, we're going to have a Molek party this Saturday at such and such address, 7 o'clock, heavy hors d'oeuvres. And we're going to sacrifice our oldest child at about 9 o'clock. Or you'd call the police and you say, "There's something going on that's just horrible." You're not going to do that. You're not going to participate with demons that way. Oh, here in Corinth, part of demon worship, part of demon worship was that there were these fertility specialists at the temples who had ritual intercourse with men. I hope to be not too indelicate, but if you got a party this week, that says we're going to have a Corinthian worship experience at our house. And at 8 30 we're going to bring in some Corinthian high priestesses and there will be this mass carnality. You wouldn't go. But see here's here's the issue. Idolatry is is anything that usurps the authority of Jesus in my life. My affection. There's been some recent writings, a guy named Tim Keller wrote an incredible book on idolatry. And and this is what he says. I think I've got it here. He says, idolatry is making a good aspect of creation, marriage, mountains, business, and so on, into the ultimate source of security, identity, and power. And you see, this is where I can deceive my heart. We think that idols are bad things, but that's not the case in our lives. Idols are good things that have taken the supremacy that belongs only to Christ. And that's why in these these words that really are really potentially horrible words, in Luke 14 when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life. He can't be my disciple. You think, what, 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 what is he saying? This is the Lord of love. And what he's saying is that I must be ultimate. You see, that, that's where my heart is so deceptive. Sports can be your idol. Fitness can be your idol. Family Jesus destroys the supremacy of all those things, including the family, by the way. And if, I, if I'm to really guard my heart from evil, Satan just wants to incapacitate us. There's a wonderful line in the screw tape where, where, where the senior demon says, you know, white mice are as good as murder. <laughs> just get them involved in loving white mice. It's the gentle slope that leads down to hell. So I, I, I come to this and I go, how, how do I discern in my own heart? What do I do? And here, here's my answer in part. I need to work this out more. But if I am to deal with my own heart, I, mean, I talked this about to the men two weeks ago. I, I, to me, there, there are four aspects. I, I've got to really be a student of the Bible. I've got to study the Bible. This is the Word of God. Secondly, I study the Bible in the context of community with brothers and sisters. And I, I have people in my life, and I'll say, listen, if, if you th- see things that are, call me, say, hey, what's going on? Or you say, I'm thinking about this, what do you think? And I, I have people speaking into my life because their hearts can be so deceptive. Th- thirdly, I understand the historical context of the Bible. I, when it comes to heresy... When it comes to sin, the devil goes on the same path. I'm telling you, you study church history, you have, you, you have, you have Arianism, you have Jehovah's Witnesses. They're just there. It's the same path. It's just a different verbiage, different garb. So I, I know History. I talk with people about history. And then, fourthly, I make application to my life. That, that's, I, I don't know how else to do it. You, but you've got to be in community, brothers. You've got to be part of a church, part of a community group, part of fellowship. We've got to have that. So, Jesus taught us to pray don't let me be tempted. Instead, deliver me from the evil one. It's a major prayer request. When somebody says to you, how can I pray for you? A dear brother asked me that last week. Maybe we ought to say, hey, pray that I won't be overwhelmed by temptation. I'd be delivered from the sources of evil and the devil. Because I'm in warfare. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's stand and close in prayer. Okay, just stand. I thank you, O Lord, that uh, the Apostle Paul, a man of incredible discipline, used of you, says with a stirring cry, I discipline my body, I make it my slave. He says that all these athletes compete and compete with gladness and grandeur to get a wreath that does not last. But we compete and we love and we strive as the people of God to receive a, a, a reward as living as obedient Christians that says, "A well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I just thank you for the examples in Scripture. And I thank you that these men and women, um, many of them walked by faith and they just trusted you. And I thank you for the example of people that that didn't trust you, that murmured, that complained, that put their affections elsewhere. God, may that be a stirring reminder to us. God, have mercy on us, I pray. I just, just have mercy on us. Um, I, I, I pray that we would be radically centered on the goodness of Christ. I, I pray that, that we would flee from idolatry. And it's so hard to even see that with our own selves. eyes. So, God, give us grace to see it. Oh, give us grace to see it. And use us. Use us to make a statement for Christ in this culture to the glory of your name. Lord, even this week, use us to live for you and to live selflessly and to live with love and abandon. So, so God, bless us now. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.